0: What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey.
1: Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's Good Friday for some, and last weekend was Passover for others. But for the art world, there's been one enduring constant for 31 years now. The mysterious robbery at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston of 13 works of art, valued at $500 million, which remains unsolved. With the current reward money of $10 million for any credible lead to the recovery of the artworks by Vermeer, Rembrandt, Degas, among others, this remains one of the most elusive art thefts ever. It's the subject of a new novel, A Discerning Eye, by our amazing guest, Carol Orange, and it's published by Cavan Bridge Press. Welcome, Carol. Great to have you with us.
2: Thank you, Diane. It's my pleasure to be
1: here. Congratulations on the great press. Vanity Fair chimed in. It's a book of great beauty. Uh, and um, congratulations to you for your first debut novel.
2: Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. I'm very excited.
1: You must about be. it. <laughs> Yeah, you must be. Uh, You've had quite an extensive uh, resume. Carol Orange has worked in the art world for more than 20 years. She began as a research editor on art books in London and later became an art dealer in Boston. She also worked as an advertising manager for South and Central America at the Polaroid Corporation, also involved in imagery, right, Carol? She, you've lived in Paris for two years where you researched George Sand's life and writing. Her short story, Delicious Dates, was included in Warren Adler's 2010 short story anthology. Another story, Close Call, appeared in the Atherton Review. A Discerning Eye is your debut novel. Carol, such an interesting and multidimensional life. How would you describe yourself now that you've gone off sleuthing in the art world here at this book?
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Um, Well, I think the first adjective I would use about myself is creative. I see myself as a creative problem solver, and I am drawn to create the creative arts, um, art, music, ballet, theater, Um, I grew up in a suburb of New York in Westchester, and so I was very fortunate. My parents always brought me into Manhattan so that at a young age, I would say maybe I started around six, I was brought to the uh, Metropolitan Museum, um, to the Museum of Natural History. My mother took me to the opera to see Carmen and to the ballet, so I was, you know, brought up in this um, household that was, you know, and there were always tons of books, so I would consider myself very creative. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm also deeply committed. I have long-term friendships. Um, My best friend and I go back to seven years old. We've remained close. We travel a lot together. And um, I'm also committed to um, political causes. I have, you know, deep values about quality. And Mm -hmm. then um, I am curious, (laughs) always curious. Um, One of my favorite authors is Rina Maria Rilke, and his letter to a young poet has been something that uh, I revere. And so I consider myself, as Rilke says, always a beginner. I'm Mm -hmm. always eager to um, learn new things. Um, I'm not afraid to fail, although failing certainly doesn't feel good, but I'm not afraid to do it because I know that we often learn from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. So, um, (laughs) So that's how I would... Describe myself. I'm very yeah. honest, but also,
1: tactful. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. something, okay. And something, something of a risk taker. I think you know, when you write a novel and put it out there, that's taking a big leap. The um, Reiner Maria Rilke is always such a fascinating um, poet to me as well. I mean, he went through such an identity crisis. That's you know what we talk about here. He was meant to be a girl. His mother desperately wanted to be a girl, him to be a girl, and that's why he was called Maria. And he often had to identify himself as Maria. Um, and he grew up with this kind of, you know, split in his personality that um, you know became really interesting in terms of the way he looked at the world. But I wondered if the way you looked at the world through Portia Malatesta, your protagonist in A Discerning Eye, she was living this kind of beautiful existence, a lucky existence as I would say yours was to be immersed in beauty by your family. <clears throat> Portia was also an art dealer in Boston. Uh, the main character, and then she gets kind of sideways. Um, she's got the loss of her brother, which um, rivets her. It, she she and her brother always visited the Gardner Gardner Museum, sat in front of these works that have now gone missing, and she um, then becomes, you know, you know, enamored with the idea of fixing this, making it right. And there, I when you say you have your your values, you know, this sense of justice, right, of, of trying to resolve this crime that's plagued the art world now for, you know, over three decades. Do you think that you lived vicariously through your main character, Portia? Oh,
2: very definitely. Um, I mean, I think Portia is braver than I am. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely um, lived vicariously through Portia. I mean, I loved the Gardner Museum when I moved to Boston. That was the place I always went to. I just thought Isabella Gardner was an amazing person to have put together this marvelous collection in her beautiful Venetian Palazzo and make it available to the public. Um, so um, yes, I I definitely lived vicariously through Portia, but she's I never I did travel to Medellin, Colombia when I worked for Polaroid, but I never would have gone <laughs> to Medellin when the drug war was um, you know uh, at its worst, which she did because mm-hmm. she had to find those paintings.
1: Right. Well, we wouldn't after some of the great films that have come out, uh, also on the drug cartels and everyone gets killed at the dinner table. It, no thanks. But you know, you you were brave through Portia. You're going to continue to be brave because there's a sequel in the works, and this will be, you know, <laughs> uh, fans of fans of a discerning eye are you know among myself are included, um, are are you know grateful that there's going to be more from Portia. Um, you allude to the fact, you know, your friendship from the age that you were seven is so tender and sweet. And there is always, it seems, in this book, something personal that anchors the um, the eye of the, or the motivation of Portia to solve the crime because of her beloved brother Antonio, but also for the criminal. Right? There's a whole slew of theories, of course, of what happened to the Gardner Museum works. Some of them do attach to the personal, and in your version, there was an attachment to these works that was very personal um, from the villain. We won't give spoiler alerts, but are you? do you believe, um, as a person who's actually studied psychology, that there is somehow always a personal angle to these motivations on either side?
2: Um, I believe not always, but... It definitely, I, I believe in the gardener and in some of the um, other art thefts that have happened um, in Paris. I think it was last year or the year before, there was uh, a young man who was, I believe, from Bosnia, and he uh, stole art from the Musée de l'Art Moderne and the art that he stole were paintings that particularly appealed to him. Um, so I believe in certain cases of art that the art in and of itself means a lot to the person who's either stolen it themselves or is the mastermind. In other cases, it's just really random and um I don't understand all the motivations, like, um, you know, the scream has mm-hmm. been stolen. Amongst the scream has been stolen several times. And, you know, the scream is, um, it, it personifies um, almost insanity. So I don't mm-hmm. know why that particular painting would appeal to someone. I, I can't fathom that. Mm -hmm. And then the Mona Lisa has been stolen a couple of times, too. Um, But mostly, I think the art thefts are random, but I I really believe in the case of the gardener that the particular paintings that were stolen uh, appealed very deeply to the thief, and well, the mastermind, yeah.
1: It's, I think, something that you bring to light in the book, um, that there was a selective process in those works. While they were extraordinary, it's Rembrandt's only seascape, for example. It's also true that there were much more valuable works nearby that the thieves overlooked. And in your analysis of the crime in the uh, discerning eye you analyze the possible attraction which i thought was brilliant um there is this sort of interplay of light and shadow you know in all of the works and you delve into the mind of the criminal we won't give away too much but you know, in the in the case of the Mona Lisa, yeah, it was you know, a person from Italy who didn't believe that that work should have ever left Italy. Um, you know, there when you say random, that sort of alludes to, you know, just the money, the money factor. Um but i I, I was fascinated by the profile that you created of this criminal. Um, that the light in the shadow, you know, as a person who's studied psychology, again, I have to go back to this, that Jung, you know, with the shadow side and somehow that you feel in your bones that this person was dealing with some kind of dichotomy, right? Is that part of your theory? Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. correct. And,
2: um, you know, that they, they definitely had a hard time accepting Or the shadowy side of themselves. But when they saw it uh, reflected in the artwork, it was, it just spoke internally to them. In in particular, uh, Manet's uh, Cafe uh, Tortoni, where this gentleman all dressed up in evening clothes is sitting in the cafe with uh, half a glass of wine on the table and half the space in shadow. Um, it's like this is what, this is how they, they identified, or he <laughs> identified himself. And mm-hmm. he saw this and said, I, I have to have this.
1: Mm-hmm. It's compelling. And especially because the Manet uh, was on a different floor than the others. Um, the only... I mean, I've been reading about this because it is is gripping. And I, before the show went on, I looked at the images again of these works. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you have definitely... Um, cause for being hired by the FBI. I don't know if they've reached out to you, but they should at some point, <laughs> Carol. I mean, what about with this book? And, you know, you've done all this great, I think, really probing um, the mind of the criminal with this. And, you know, the mane, they they said that the, um, you know, that gallery, it actually, the, the motion detectors, the, the the only person that had been in that gallery was actually thought to be one of the guards. Um, and so that's another intriguing aspect of whether there was inside help, meaning that not the guard was that the guard was like a point person hitman to steal the work for this acquisitive collector. And is that why these works then have stayed underground so long? I read an interview that you did with dig boston and and you said you thought they'd be recovered at some point. Do you really believe that this will happen, and, and if so, how so?
2: I, I do. I believe that this will happen um, because I believe that the progeny of the mastermind, who, whoever has these works of art, that you know the progeny at some point will realize. What has happened, and will want to restore the works to the Gardner Museum where they belong. I mean, this has happened in Germany um, with um, a girl, uh whose father mm-hmm. was a Nazi art dealer, and um, you know, he. Was the son of the art, the Nazi art dealer, and um, you know those works. After he passed away, those works were restored to, I hope, to their original owners, but certainly to Germany. So, I, I you know, there are examples of where this has happened, and so my, I would say it's more my hope that mm-hmm. the progeny would. Realize the sins of their father mm-hmm. and um want to uh, want to bring the art back to the world where it belongs
1: to make good to sort of it's like a sort of a resurrection, it's theme, you know. Uh, and I think yes. that, you know, restitution is part of your thread going forward um, with Portia. You know, the girl at, okay, so that was like a trove of of paintings that were like basically in a house, right? That were hidden in a house.
2: Yes, they were, were in a yeah. house in Munich. In Munich, yeah. there are, yeah, I think there were like 150 works of art.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Amazing
2: yeah, and
1: all, yeah. looted, looted basically from the homes yes, of, of, of um, Jewish yeah. people during, during the Holocaust. Absolutely. And, you know, the dissolution of lives, treasures, memories, lives themselves. Um, it's symbolic to have them recovered and it's symbolic to have them restored to their rightful owners. The portrait of Adele Block Bauer, which I know, I'm sure you know, um, you know, was on, yes. on the wall of a museum, for heaven's sake, um, when, you know, it was finally identified. And this is just a, you know, totally fascinating subject. It gives me goosebumps. Um, and I love that you're going to pursue this doggedly. Um, we we um, have just a moment, but um, just give us a quick yes or no. Portia is going to continue as a real life sleuth on and on, we hope.
2: Well, definitely um, there will be. I'm working on the second novel. I I don't know that it's going to be on and on Um, (laughs) Yes, to answer your question.
1: (laughs) Well, well, we're excited because very few people who have taken on the subject know both worlds and you are an art world insider so that gives us um, a lot of information and depth of knowledge that we wouldn't ordinarily have. Um, So, We're going to come back from a commercial break, and when we do, we're going to talk more with Carol Orange about the hero's journey you were writing with this book and that you're going to continue taking with your protagonist, Portia Malatesta. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast All the time The number one internet talk station Where your opinion counts VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey We'd love to hear from you If you have a question or comment about the show Send us an email to Diane at com. That's Diane at com. Now, back to Dropping In.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Carol Orange, whose uh, book, A Discerning Eye, takes a close look at an unsolved robbery at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. 13 works, $500 million dollars. $10 Ten million dollar reward for any substantive clues on the to lead to the recovery of this artwork, and yeah, here we are three decades later, with Carol, an art expert, positing her own theories about why this might have happened. I think it's so fascinating, Carol. You you know you've given us these characters, and I think as an art dealer. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, the focus in the art world uh, always seems to be on the big money, the kind of, you know, the tech money that's now in the art world. Um, Not so much, you know, the individual effort that goes into making art and the very personal relationships that you cultivate as an art dealer that can go on for decades themselves, knowing families who collect. And um, I think the personal aspect then of these characters During the break, you mentioned the connection that people feel with some of them. Um, Tell us what it's like to bring a novel to life and have people identify with these characters.
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that most people, not all, um, really uh, identify with Portia Malatesta um, because Portia is complex. She's not, you know, uh, she's multidimensional and she's passionate and she's also grieving. You know, she's had terrible losses in her life and um, none of us get through life without these awful losses that impact us. But they, you know, identify with her because she wants to... Uh, her values are very authentic, and she wants to restore what has been lost um, to a museum, which anyone who goes to the Garden Museum falls madly in love with it. It's such a beautiful place, and mm-hmm. the fact that someone, you know, could defile it by stealing from it, it is just so horrific. And so, um, many of the readers, um, I would say most really identify with her. Um, I've had one or two people who didn't like her, you know, um, because Because? they thought, well, because she was, she tended to be a little bit flirtatious, um, and her marriage was a, a little bit rocky and, you know, again, I I personally feel that's more real and human, but, um, you know, one or two readers were offended by that. <laughs> they oh, were more, moralist, more moralistic. Um, and then, you know, uh, with Carlos Alfonso, the young man who grew up poor in the barrio of Medellin, Colombia, but marries the daughter of the leading drug lord, um, I was, you know, delighted when I heard from this uh, man I know who actually used to be um, the for d' at the um, the opera, the Metropolitan Opera Cafe. I forgot the name of it, but... Mm-hmm. He's in the hospitality industry, and Carlos, you know, owns these hotels in Medellin. And you know, Carlos is not, you know, evil. He he has good and bad qualities. Um, I mean, he he ends up being a criminal, which is, but he's tortured by it. He's not a, a sociopath. And this young man who was in the hospitality industry told me, "Oh, I just, I just felt so, so sad about what happened to Carlos." And um, so I, I've had reader reactions to um, uh, all those characters, and some people have written me and said, "I, I want to know more about Antonio, who was <clears throat> Porsches." younger brother, and he, you know, committed suicide, and, uh, you know, so many people wanted to know more depth about mm-hmm. Antonio, but that would have been another story, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was what motivated Portia to get involved in helping to solve the art theft.
1: Mm-hmm. So, well- um yeah. Go ahead. I, I mean I loved The Rocky Marriage myself. I thought um first of all it impelled her to wanna break out of the kind of boring constraint of her life. Because you know you, you know if you if you really got everything and you're super happy about every single thing every day that's not a good story. Like you need the, the the motivation to, the incentive to want to join the FBI, go to a drug cartel uh, in Medellin, go, go, you know, get your life in danger and uh, throw caution to the wind. She's also got these great flirtations going on. I'm kind of like, well, he does seem more attractive than her husband. You know, I mean, so there's, I think you're also creating dramatic tension there right and and she needs to have all this ambivalence but she's definitely drawn to writing the wrong in the way that you know carlos who's the quote bad guy and i understand he's a complex character too he, he's a family man right he he steals this artwork um in part because he's drawn to it but also for his wife who's a big art aficionado and and collector right to have this beauty in their home, that is one of the, that's thought to be one of the common motivations. People wanna covet works that they can't get their hands on. They're owned by museums, so they steal them. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea of, of possession and Carlos, in the end, you have him say, you know, to have risked his family for possessions. That was where he went wrong. Do you think that that's one of the takeaways from the book?
2: I do I absolutely do is that you know um you know he 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 did you know after um his marriage and his running the hotel successfully, but having to um be a consultant to um San Pedro Martinez, who was the cartel leader. Um you know he he wanted something he had a certain amount of hubris, and he wanted he wanted things objects that would make him feel that he was larger than light and this actually this kind of motivation is not very different from herman goring uh mm-hmm. who uh had the same kind of you know the art made him. Feel larger than life it gave him a sense of importance um so yeah um i i i lost my threat for a moment don't worry Uh, don't
1: worry you were you were right i think that acquisitiveness gives people a sense mm -hmm. of power right possession you know of these world treasures are now in the possession they're in your home Or they're in, you know, if it's Hermann Goering, the the warehouse that he's building that he doesn't care, he's deprived people of their existence and these treasures. He has them now. And that's his maniacal, you know, uh, megalomania and sadism as as well. But um, this this sense of acquisition, it's also a legitimizing force, right? A lot of people feel... If they if they have if they have dirty money if they've got blood on their hands, but getting this artwork is gonna clean them up, right? Do you find that a motivation?
2: Totally, totally. That's that's you said that so well. Yes, exactly. Um, it it makes them you know feel more worthwhile. That if they can own this art that everyone wants and covets, then they must be
1: okay, they must be special, actually. And, yeah, you said it very well. Thank you. um, No, you're welcome. I also look at the arc that you've, you know, carved out, which I hope is true, as you do, that over time, the people who felt special about having robbed art, the next generation may be examining their conscience and saying... Wait a minute Th- this doesn't belong to us. What do you think has happened in these intervening decades? have we gotten more enlightened and a better sense of values in some sort of undercurrent way is that is that part of your thinking Yes
2: I, I think that the children of people who who have you know, transgressed against society, want to make up for it. Um, they, you know, very often that's the case. They they want to uh restore the family honor. Um, you know, that's the, that's what I think the motivation is. They you know, they they realize that yes, you know, I mean, first of all they, they can't sell the art. It's mm-hmm. Too well known, so they have they can't possibly sell it. So, you know, why why should they have it versus where it belongs? And you know, they they want to um, they want to restore family honor,
1: and they want to restore yeah, themselves too their their wholeness, mm-hmm. their family's honor for sure. Because mm-hmm. you know, look at look at Ronald Lauder. You know, he 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 acquires. The portrait of adela block power which was looted art um right and he acquired it at auction for 158 million dollars the klimt right. and so this became one of the highest selling auction works at the time and then he he gave that money to the heirs um of you know the the, the family that owned this this work right. i mean the, the money so i, I think you know the, the, or he gave also he the 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 canvas itself um, you can see, um, so they, in other words, they they are oh, sorry, the heirs earned that money by him purchasing it for that exorbitant amount. extraordinary amount at the time. but I like what you're saying that you feel as though somehow some of these wrongs are going to be righted. and Portia Malatesta, she gets it going pretty, you know, her arc, you know, she does go on this hero's journey. And do you feel that like, you know, a lot of us, we want to go on some kind of hero's journey to right some of these wrongs. You know, we have that vicarious feeling right now. And we hear the courtroom testimony in George Floyd's murder trial. You know, you've got EMTs who were told not to revive this person. Isn't there part of us that wants to get up and do something about things yes. we feel helpless about? Yeah. Talk to us oh, about for that. for sure.
2: I think so. I think so. I think that, you know, I think that a large percentage of the population really feels that way, really wants to um, write the wrongs that have been done, you know, to see George Floyd murdered on television, you know, it was similar to watching uh, villages burning in Vietnam and, um, you know, on, a, on your television set and, you know, to watch this inhumane uh, act and, you know, all of us, not all of us, unfortunately, but large percentage of people are outraged at this kind of behavior, and, you know, we can't sit back and just watch it happen. We have to do something, and, you know, I think it it affects lots of people, and, you know, so, um, you know, even though we're still in a pandemic, you know, people get out and march. And do, you know, have their voices heard um, or vote um, because, you know, we, we want those wrongs to be righted. We want, we want to—it's uh, an appeal to our better selves, and we can't be complacent. We have to do something uh, to make our society fairer,
1: more equal—
2: Absolutely, it, it benefits everyone living in a society
1: like that. And it's an impulse that you examine in your book, which I think is gives it just that much more juice. You know, that much more momentum. Um, this this writing writing wrongs, restitution. You know, recovery of some wholeness that we need to feel because we feel really blotted and, and stained by the past, by, by history. I mean, it doesn't seem to have like all that much to do with art, but it does because as you say, there you were as a child, six years old in a museum, you know, at the Metropolitan and, you know, looking at artworks with your mother, what could be more tender? And then, you know, at the gardener, the frames are still there, the works are missing. Um it's the absence. It's something we have to fill that void. And I think that, you know you're you're really talking about your personal um, understanding of that as a kind of evolution of of what needs to happen. Um, you are now going to embark on a story of restitution, for which I give you a lot of credit. Um, how long did it take you to write? A discerning eye? Well, I had a full-time job (laughs) while I was
2: writing it, so it it did take me 10 years. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, wrote intermittently, um, but, you know, the story was was with me, and um, I'm still involved with my writing group um, at the New York Society Library, which is a very special and wonderful place. So we would meet every month, and I, I went through uh, with lots of revisions. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, writing is revision, revision, revision. Right. Um, so it, it took me longer than uh, I would have liked because I had a full-time job. But now, I, I, for my second novel, I'm like... I I think I'm hoping it's only going to take 2 years cuz I can mm-hmm. really focus
1: on it. And you know, you you you're also I think yeah, you'll 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 have some of those tracks covered. But like, you know, who does art belong to if it's in the public domain? We really we go to these places, these sanctuaries to get away from our lives, and then those works are taken. Um we have to take a break ourselves right now. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
0: Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit BooksForward.com or send us an email at info at BooksForward.com, a JKS communications company. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Sorry if I dropped off rather than dropped in there for a minute. Um, This $10 million reward for information leading to the safe recovery of the Gardner Museum's stolen art it's an enticement. There's lots of theories, right, Carol? We're sitting here with Carol Orange, yes. author of A Discerning Eye. Um, you know, I didn't. I hope that you don't feel fearful of the drug cartels because you got them sort of implicated in the novel. But it is fiction. Um, what are some of the ideas about what did happen in the Gardner Museum? Heist? Well,
2: um, okay, um, several known. Uh, Boston uh, people were uh, thought to be involved. Um, Whitey Bulger was one of them. He was um, mafia uh, boss in um, South Boston, and he was kind of ruthless. And um, he was considered as one of the possible. Um, I mean, the mafia definitely had some involvement. We don't know exactly what, but Whitey Bulger, um, you know, had gone to California with his girlfriend and was living, um, under, uh, other name, another name, but he was captured by the FBI and was imprisoned and he was killed in prison. So, um... Mm-hmm. The other person who was suspect and still, in a way, is, is Miles Hunter, and he is very unusual guy. Um, he's out of prison now, but he was in prison at the time of the robbery, and he, he, he has both um, sort of... Uh, you know, local Boston background, but he also, on, I think, his um, mother's side, uh, is descended from, you know, the American Revolution. (laughs) So he has both, you know, sort of sluggish qualities, but also, you know, blue blood qualities, and he's Hmm. very sly. So he had stolen a... Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts, which is very close to um, the gardener. They're very, you know, physically very close. And um, he used the stolen Rembrandt, and oh, he loves art, and he used the stolen Rembrandt as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he's so he's been known to to steal art, and he bragged that he was involved with the Gardner from prison. Um, so Anthony Amore, who's the current head of security at the Gardner Museum, mm-hmm. is in pretty close contact right now with Miles Connor. But I don't know. I I think he's just such a character. Um, I think he would like to think. That he was involved with Mm -hmm. the Gardner robbery, Um, but you know, if if he had been, it would have been discovered by now. Mm -hmm. So um,
1: (laughs) fascinating. Those, those are yeah, yeah. You've you've done. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, it's so also localized, you know, know, it seems as though the artworks went Philadelphia, maybe Connecticut, but not far. Um, So it's so tantalizing. You began began your research career early on when you were a research editor on art books in London. How do you think that played into your experience, your current experience? Well, I
2: felt so privileged to have this, um, position working for a British publishing company on um, art books, and I worked on a book of Spanish art, and my advisor was Xavier de Salas, and he was um, attached to the Spanish consulate at the time, but he later became the director of the Prado. So, I got to know him, and he was really an amazing man. Um, his son had been killed in the Algerian War and he, you know, he was fighting for the Algerians and he was killed. And so Xavier de Salas was a very deep person and his interpretation of Spanish art and his commitment to art really, you know, I mean, it was palpable, and I think he had a profound influence on me. I was, you know, 21 at the time that I met him. So, actually, when I, when my daughter was three years old and we were living in Spain um, for the summer, I had to bribe her with a flamenca dress <laughs> to <laughs> accompany me to the product so that I could Um, meet Xavier de Salas and, you know, show her three years old, which was a little too young, the magnificent Las Meninas um, and some of the boyas, and meet this wonderful man.
1: So, I mean, they're so legendary, these characters. And you also saw the multi-layers of motivation to be so passionate about art. Did it take with your daughter? Was she imprinted as well?
2: yes. Yes. Oh, cool. Yes, she um studied art history at college and she spent her junior year in Rome. Um and wrote her thesis on um, portraiture in the Renaissance. <laughs> so um Right. Yes. <laughs> and you you <laughs>
1: Wonderful. And you also, you know, you began by saying you're creative. You also um, took a detour and went to Paris for a couple of years researching George Sand. And I, I or George Sand, I, I, I think to myself, is it because of feminism, her writing? I mean, this is another nom de plume for a woman. Um, is it because she was a Salonese? She, She had this incredible salon. What were your motivations to do that, pursuing that?
2: Okay. Um, yeah. Well, in, in Paris, um, I lived in the Rue Daniel Stern, and I asked um, my Parisian friend uh, who, who was that, and it turns out that he was Marie Dagou, who was a pontiff and also a writer and the lover of Franz Liszt. So, I became very fascinated with Marie Dagu, and that led me to Georges Sand and Chopin and the 19th century in Paris, which was really the center of the creative world at the time, um, the Romantic era, with Victor Hugo and Eugene Delacroix, and Mm -hmm. uh, Sand appealed to me because she was a novelist, and because she, in her lifetime, I mean, it's just amazing. She wrote a hundred books. I don't wow. know how she did it. And she <laughs> she wrote 20 pages a day, longhand, of course, no matter what else was going on in her life. And that's like, wow. I mean, she... she what appealed to me about her was that, against all odds, she managed to live this rich, creative life, and, um, you know, she, she was a survivor and, um, a, a creator, and also, you know, helped other people, um, at the same time. I mean, she wrote, oh, I don't know, thousands of letters, and, um... You know, she was friendly with Flaubert, who, um, later in her life, and he called her, I mean, I think uh, Flaubert is one of the greatest writers of all time, and he called her master. um, You are the master of writing. And um, so that's what fascinated me about Georges Sand, is that she um, had a very uh, traumatic, Childhood, her father died when she was i think three years old and um her her um, she was in this her grandmother, who was from the aristocracy didn't like her mother, who was the daughter of a bird seller in paris so um you know um she was pulled between these these two women and i i don 't know how she managed to um uh, mm-hmm to make a life, a wonderful
1: life for herself. She, dug, she juggled a lot of, she juggled a lot of plates. Um, I, I, I came across Victor Hugo's quote at, the, at her funeral. Um, and, it, you know, in this country whose law is to complete the French Revolution and begin that of equality of the sexes being part of the equality of men, a great woman was needed Um, It was necessary to prove that a woman could have all the manly gifts without losing her angelic qualities, to be strong without ceasing to be tender. Georges Sand proved it. And I think there's something to that in your motivations and your kind of uh, character as well. There's this determination. There's this mission, sense of mission. And yet there are these tender, you know, these tender relationships. Um, and you've taken on a lot of hidden, um, you know, you've speculated and taken on a lot of uh, challenges about hidden um, works of art, hidden mysteries, uh, trying to solve things. Talk about just, you know, in terms of telling the, the our listeners, how much art, say, of any given museum are we seeing in a permanent collection at any given time?
2: No, so I think in the major museums we're only seeing. Um, I would. Uh, this is purely a, a guess. Um, half of what of the art that they own, um, and I, I don't know. You know, you worked at the Guggenheim, so you probably know more about this than I do. But that's my guess. What What do you think?
1: Um, well, I started at the Guggenheim in 1990, the year that the Gardner Heist took place. Of course, my hair stood at end to think that that could happen. And But as it turns out, there are a lot of um, unreported art thefts that go on because if it comes off the walls in you know the public rooms, you've got to report it, obviously, and you should report it anyway. But, you know, museums feel a number of things, embarrassment. Um, They might, you know, be on to like an inside job that if they say something, then that scares off the person and they're trying to, you know, capture that person. I think these days you're you're probably right. You know, we've got these big art spaces, um, you know, museums are annexing their building. And so, yeah, it's closer to half. But, yeah, you know, in those days it was, you know, as little as... Five ten percent. Um, you know, a lot of art is in storage, so a lot of the thefts that go on might even be hidden from us. You know, that an extra layer, extra layer of mystery. Um, but Carol, well, you know, you've just done, I think, a wonderful favor for all of us to not be afraid. Um, you know, you've taken a lot of your own knowledge and converted it into something that's really, I think, um, inspiring to us by reading uh, A Discerning Eye. Do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share with us our listeners? We've just got a few minutes left, believe it or not.
2: Oh, thank you, Diane. This has been so so much fun, such a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, okay, I mean, my my big wish is that, I mean, I believe that great art should be seen by the public. I know that lots of collectors, you know, ultimately, you know, donate their art to museums, which is wonderful, you know, the Frick, the Lehman Collection at the Met. um, You know, I, 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 I think that's a tradition that is... I truly value, and is wonderful, but I think the public needs to see great art. I mean, take Guernica, Picasso's Guernica. Uh, I used to spend hours looking at that in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and unfortunately, I can't do that anymore because it is where it belongs in Spain, but that painting is so profound. It's, you know, it's Against war. And, you know, the public needs to see that Mm -hmm. because it it really, you know, tells you what the horrors of war are and why we need to avoid unnecessary wars.
1: It's a statement, right? And I think you know that, that impulse that you're talking about, that generosity of collectors to share art with the public is so important. A lot of economic forces disrupt that sometimes. So Carol, another, I think, brilliant observation from you. Thank you for being with us. For more information, visit carolorange.com, it's spelled exactly the way you might think. It's a great name. Connect with her on Twitter at C Orange Antiques or Instagram, carolorange2. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners, remember to stay safe. And if you hear something, say something, report any clues to the FBI, could be worth $10 million. No, really, crime does not pay, but honesty does. Till next week. Thank you so much for dropping in.
0: Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.